Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It was Sunday, the 19th of May, 1997, and the cream of the Australian television industry gathered at Melbourne's Crown Palladium for the 39th annual TV Week Logie Awards. On stage was Colin Freels receiving the Most Outstanding Actor Award for his portrayal of Detective Senior Constable Frank Holloway in Channel 9's smash hit drama series Water Rats. What does this have to do with rugby league? All too much for TV viewers of 1997. This is part one of Two Tribes, the 33rd chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm fantastic, mate. How are you? I'm good. This is a big chapter because by the end of this chapter, we will have talked about actual Super League football (laughs) in Australia. Uh, We're finally going to see some Super League football. Not in this episode, mind you. You'll You'll have to wait till part three for that. Well, great feedback on our comeback episode for season three. Thanks, everybody, for your kind words. Just so good to be back in the saddle. It's really good to be back. And as always, there's a bit of setup work to do at the outset. The first thing I wanted to comment on is the title of this chapter, Two Tribes. This is the second chapter of our series whose title I have lifted from another book, <laughs> uh, the first being Blitzkrieg, which was the title of a chapter in Mike Coleman's Super League book. Two Tribes is obviously the name of Steve Mascord's book, which anyone who's listened to us through 90 episodes, I'm sure is aware of it and has read it. Uh, If not, I would suggest doing so. In our defense, I'll say that our Two Tribes chapter was named Two Tribes about four years ago. So (laughs) (laughs) I thought about trying to change it, but it's just the most obvious. We're going to be talking about the marketing campaigns of Super League and the ARL and all the kind of competing interests that took place over the course of the year. So really, it was just the the perfect name. It was something that we couldn't really uh, come up with a suitable alternate. You can't ignore it because it's the whole campaign. Yeah, it's exactly. It's stupid campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing uh, to note at the start is that we saw a bit of it in our Clearing the Decks chapter, but certainly from this chapter onwards, there's a bit of a departure in style from what we put together in Seasons 1 or 2, which was kind of vaguely chronological. In this season, we're basically going to be traversing the course of the 1997 season in every chapter. So you'll hear things that happened late in the year, uh, and then we'll be going back to things that happened earlier in the year. So consider every chapter from here, 1997 as a whole. But so this is a a three-part chapter. And in the first part, we're going to look at some of the external forces that were working on rugby league at the time. So uh, some of the broadcasting issues, some of the ongoing court actions, 
Uh, but firstly, I thought it was a good chance to check in on the competition. And this will uh, hopefully be the last time we have to talk about rugby union and AFL in our series. But, uh, you know, who knows? It's almost like a um, a sadistic thing with us, isn't it? <laughs> keep bringing it up, bringing <laughs> yeah. it up. I, I think you have to. I, I think we've shown in the past that you really need to give some context as to some of the other sports that were maybe threatening to, to steal rugby league's place in the culture at the time. It's just unfathomable to think now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad we've, you know, clawed back most of that lost ground. But a sign of the times was that there was in Sydney in March a launch of all the football codes at the same time. So uh, you had the two competing rugby league competitions as well as (laughs) AFL Union and soccer all being celebrated together. (laughs) When you say it out loud. Yeah. (laughs) So at this stage, we've covered the fact that Union and AFL were really going well in Sydney, but there were some surprising challenges to rugby league's throne in Sydney in 1997, one of them being sumo wrestling, which drew full houses at the SCG and the Entertainment Centre. The SCG is a crazy venue for it. Um, Big round stadium for sumo, but I actually always regret never seeing it when it's come out here. And when I went to Japan, it wasn't on. Yeah. It was out of season or something. And I'd love to watch it like once. Mm. I think it's definitely a a novelty attraction. Does it feel like it's fallen out of cultural relevance? I I feel like it used to be something that you'd see referenced and – I don't think so in Japan. I think yeah. they still love it. But, I mean, with MMA now, mm. it just takes over the world. MMA has got the moron dollar. Yeah. So, I think in Japan, they still love it. Does the novelty rubber suit version of sumo wrestling, <laughs> did that kind of kill some of its uh, hipster appeal? Are you referencing one P. Vorton <laughs> on the footy show? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's technicalities to it. But once you saw two fat guys pushing each other out of a circle, yeah, I think you've seen it. Yeah, I think that some critics of rugby league might say the same thing about our game. One, two, three, kick. (laughs) Well, let's get to that. And and I think part of the hubris of rugby union was that they got this early, you know, bite of success with the super rugby and it got to their heads a little too quickly. And and there's a couple of examples through 1997 that uh, we're going to talk about. The first you've just referenced then, so... They launched uh, an advertising campaign on the radio featuring a dim-witted male voice saying, one, two, three, four, five, kick, one, two, three, four, five, kick. Uh, And then the the voiceover went on to say, are you bored of the predictability of rugby league? Then come watch Super Rugby. The absolute audacity of a sport where nothing happens. Yeah. (laughs) Just not even one kick, just zero kick. Yeah. And then rolling around and whistle yeah you know, it's just if you're gonna sink the slipper have something to back it up yeah yeah exactly because when we talk about predictability a scrum forms 30 meters out from the try line in a rugby union match what is going to happen <laughs> like every single time but a, a referee's whistle and it's one of newton's laws <laughs> what's going to happen and on top of the ads i think some of the the journalists and commentators got a bit too full of themselves as to where rugby union should be placed in the sporting pantheon in Australia. Uh, Spiro Zavos in in the Herald uh, was really on a tear in this article. I'll, I'll read this in full. 
Last Sunday's grandstand, 2BL's weekend sports program, was an insult to sport lovers. Unless you were one of the dwindling number of rugby league supporters, the program was a long and boring promotion of Super League with little attention given to other sports and no attempt made to inform rugby supporters about the opening matches of the Super 12 tournament. A short and totally inadequate world sports wrap was followed by a succession of ingratiating interviews with Super League officials and then a commentary of a Super League match in Newcastle where the crowd how many actually paid for their tickets, was half that at Ballymore on Saturday night for the Queensland Reds versus ACT Brumbies opener. Throughout the afternoon, the grandstand program steadfastly indulged itself (laughs) by ignoring the opening (laughs) matches of the Super 12 tournament. We need to know about Orange Free State. (laughs) This led to a weeks-long slanging match in the newspapers with grandstand's Peter Wilkins responding the following week saying, I loved him. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like him. During the football season, Grandstand devotes afternoons to rugby league in New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT, regardless of who's running the game. It's still the most popular winter code in those states, despite your dwindling audience wish. Coverage <laughs> of other sports is intertwined. It's almost fantasy stuff. Like there's a bit of a buzz about it because it's new or something like that. And so everyone loves union. No, it's still yeah. the same finance and private schoolboy clique. Yeah. The majority has never loved it and never will love it. I think that's true. I think that one of the things that stopped Union, obviously league kind of recovered, which helped. Uh, you know, the AFL took more of the private schoolboys than it did the, you know, working class league fans in the Western suburbs. But the biggest thing that stopped it for me is that there was always in Australia a fairly low ceiling on Union's popularity. It yeah. just it never got that popular support. Uh, but Spiro went on to, over the course of several more letters, repeat his demands that the ABC give Rugby Union a better go, uh, even comparing it to radio coverage in New Zealand where he said, while the ABC's grandstand program on Saturday was broadcasting the rugby league match between Illawarra and St George, its New Zealand equivalent sports roundup was carrying live commentaries from <laughs> Hong Kong of the thrilling World Rugby Sevens. <laughs> well, first of all, New Zealand's a different country, right? We'll start there. They're a union country. We're not. Like, is there anybody outside of like Deloitte that loves the yeah. Hong Kong Sevens? Seriously. <laughs> I've always hated that concept of this like expat wanker community. I, I know. Drinking Coronas yeah. or Michelos. And when he, in his uh, article, said, you know, the World Rugby Sevens played to tens of millions of people around the world, a sign of Rugby Union's true internationalism. <laughs> like, as you said, it's a tournament set up for expats in Hong Kong. Like. <laughs> Actual bankers. <laughs> it's funny we started off episode two with that complete union bashing, which I really appreciate. But I want to talk to you about looking through the dossiers and everything. Very in-depth as usual, mate, but the ABC aspect of it, it's a whole different landscape. Back then it was definitely a more rural thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a more down farmers, working class thing, the ABC. People loved it because it had no ads, you know, and it served the country. Now it's more an AFL-style, union-style person platform, in my view. See, I'd push back on that because I think it kind of like – it was that back then even, but the responsibility it had to regional areas where, you know, they, they didn't have coverage, you know, sometimes of other TV channels or sometimes it was the only thing you could get meant that they had to support that through, like, sport. And and I don't think 
that has changed since, you know. Like I'm, I'm sure if some of the, the higher-ups at the ABC got their way, there wouldn't be any rugby league on the ABC at all. <laughs> but the point is that there's still that need to satisfy, you know, it's the national broadcaster. It has to kind of serve the people. You know, Grandstand is still there and, and still providing great coverage every week. Are they talking about Orange Free State? <laughs> and it wasn't just the ABC, you know. We talked about it in our last season, but Channel 7 dumping its free-to-air coverage of Super 12. <laughs> Greg Rowden had a rant about Fox Sport. Uh, I'll read this. Fox Sport also deserves a kick in the tail. Despite advertising that the Queensland Orange Free State match would be shown live in the early hours of Sunday morning, countless rugby followers, Ruck and Mall included, stayed up only to be shown a replay of the New South Wales Canterbury game instead. After 15 minutes, Ruck and Mall gave up and went to bed, disgusted that Fox didn't even have the manners to tell viewers the Queensland game would be shown several hours later. Well, they could have just sent out a group text <laughs> to those seven people. I mean, like, more to the point, like, it just shows you how terrible, like, pay TV was at this era <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, like, it's, like, 3 a.m. in the morning and you don't play the game live, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm sympathetic to Greg Groudon there. But also, like, this is the product that you spent $700 million buying yeah. and you're not even, like, promoting it. They were absolutely incinerating money at a rugby league rate yeah. in the pay TV world. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I think that kind of shows you where we were at with Rugby Union, that the threat was maybe always exaggerated a bit based on that lack of a groundswell of popular appeal. Buzz only lasts for one, two, three years yeah. maximum. If you haven't got a product to back up your buzz, yeah, you can forget it. Well, and that's where we'll turn to the AFL, who I think the success of the Swans showed that they did have something to back it They've up. They've got a product. Yeah. yeah. Again, like with the marketing, so this was a ad that Nike put together, presumably just for Sydney audiences. It was a full page ad saying, "Now Super League is here. You can stop pretending you like Aussie rules." <laughs> I mean, I see like that to me is like real ballsy stuff. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, but it's yeah poking the bear, so to speak. It's a, a really strange move from Nike <laughs> to like be willing to bag out AFL so publicly. <laughs> When, it must be someone that really hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and predictably, this wasn't received well in Melbourne. Uh, to his credit, AFL boss Wayne Jackson didn't take the chance to have a go at Nike. He just said, our philosophy is to let the nonstop athletic prowess of Australian football do the talking. And I think there's a lesson there, yeah. and it's probably one that we should heed more often, we which is won't. just we, we won't know it. Just run your own race. Yeah. Don't worry about what the opposition is doing. But if you're confident in your product, well, that you know does the work for you. They've got such loyal and rabid fans. They can fall back on them at any time. Yeah. They don't have to worry. Mm. Whereas we are always scratching around to fill half a stadium yeah. and look like gooses. Yeah. Geese. But um, I think it's a really good uh, high road administration statement. And he had reason to be benevolent with the way the Swans were going. Like the juggernaut really rolled on, doubling their crowd average from 1996 and just getting that core audience that never went away. I remember when they painted the pig with Plugger. That was good. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed that. <laughs> but the um, it's a theme throughout this whole series and particularly this first few episodes of this season. They built that up with a slow build, deliberate and targeted and strategic build. They took major losses for a decade 
or more, and now look at it. It's set in granite. We never did that with anything. No. Ever. Yeah. And maybe, and I haven't spent time researching this, so I could be completely wrong about this, but I think maybe they learned some lessons from the mid-'80s, the Kappa era, where, you know, Jeffrey Edelson, and there was success for the Swans, but it was just built on, like, no foundations. That was a Super 12 buzz success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pink helicopters. Yeah, exactly. But the Swans Mark II was done in a manner, and they had some luck with, you know, getting Plugger and the on-field success that they were able to put it together and, and keep it. The Swans managed to pick up an extra fan, Jeff Prenter, who at many times in our story has displayed some, you know, petulant behaviour. Yeah. Uh, but he wrote this article about how he'd seen the light and was now a huge Swans fan. He wrote, With my want for rugby league very much on the wane, I decided unabashedly to hop on the Sydney Swans bandwagon and see what Plugger had to offer. Uh, in, in a long article, he goes on to say, I said goodbye to league and its excuse for scrums, once an integral part of the game, and its supercilious officials and players who seemed to think that the world owed them a living. Yes, farewell to the greed and total lack of loyalty. Oh, yeah, those um, selfless AFL players playing for free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the average citizens yeah, in Melbourne. Yeah, I, I know. Then this is the worst of all. Today, Lockett is my Beatson, Dale Lewis my Langlands, and Paul <laughs> Kelly is my Sterling. They are fabulous footballers. What was behind this? I think so. He came back and worked for the ARL in a like kind of PRE kind of role in 1995. And I saw a couple of like comments in articles that that kind of like ended badly or he left the ARL a bit disillusioned. Right. So I think there's not point scoring. Just a, a little kind of, you know, as I said, I think it's pure petulance. <laughs> I can see a guy like, you know, reasonable guy going like, you know, I don't mind AFL, they're good kickers or whatever, and they run fast or something like that. I can't see someone changing their entire code preference yeah, overnight. Yeah, And this guy's now Arthur beats them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> interestingly enough, when the last Immortals uh, vote was done a couple of years ago, Prenter was outraged that he wasn't given a vote because he was going <laughs> to vote for Proven. <laughs> I don't see him, like, you know, pounding the table for Dale Lewis to make the Hall of Fame. Yeah. You probably thought that was dead and buried, but lo and behold, Mick Adams has dug it up. So as we said, like, the Swans kind of really planted the seed that, you know, has now blossomed. But interestingly, I think the truth then as now is that Sydney is a Swans town, not an AFL town. Like at the time uh, in the 1997 finals, they noted that the previous year in 1996 where the Swans made it to the grand final, they were getting ratings of like 500,000 in the finals matches up to over a million in the grand final. In 1997 without the Swans, those finals ratings created and were, you know, kind of like 100,000 for a match between Melbourne and West Coast. Yeah. My auntie's a major Swans fan. She's a legit fan. She comes up from Melbourne and she's got friends up here that are legitimate AFL people. A lot of them are Melbourne imports, but there's a good base of proper AFL fans yeah. that love the Swans, but there's a whole lot of, I bought the scarf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the really annoying things in terms of the long-term consequences of the AFL getting successful in Sydney at this particular moment in time was that 
Stadium Australia at Homebush was being built at the time and they were, you know, desperate for tenants to make it worthwhile. Unlike a lot of the subsequent stadium developments, the Homebush Olympic Stadium was built largely with private money. So I think it was something like 400 million of the 600 million cost was private money. What have they ever made that back? I can't see how, given you know, <laughs> uh, given how Homebush has turned out. But I guess part of that is the pressure is on to get tenants. And so they were in conversations with all the football codes as well as you know other forms of entertainment, and that included the AFL. And so Wayne Jackson of the AFL put money in to see if it was viable to have AFL played there, which eventually led to them making the decision to not reconfigure it to be purely rectangular after the Olympics, the Swans started playing games there. Then a couple of years into that, they abandoned the experiment, go back to the SCG, we're left with this, you know, like horrible stadium Monstrosity that is only played by rectangular sports, but it's not a rectangular stadium. What, and you're going to discount the Sydney Super Sixers, whatever the hell they're called? (laughs) I don't think they ever play there anymore. I think Homebush is a good example of a gamble not coming off. So the thought behind it was that Sydney was capacity constrained in terms of having the SFS with, you know, 42,000 and the SCG around the same. Like there wasn't a ground big enough for some of the major sporting events in Sydney. There wasn't a ground big enough for the three events a year that may get over 60,000. Yeah, well, well, that's it. There were basically six to ten This was John Corcoran, who was high up in the administration at Stadium Australia. He thought that six to 10 games a year were capacity constrained at the SFS, which is very true. And it's not big enough for a grand final or a big origin game, but it's a lot of money to spend on six days of the year. It's a bit crooked, though, when your flagship city of a country, you know, first world country has got a 40,000 max. Well, yeah. And this is is where the gamble comes in, that... The stadium were forecasting 1.6 million spectators to attend events at the stadium in 2002. That would be 41 football games and a concert. And when they put those figures together with how many people were attending football matches, basically you take out cricket and AFL, which it wasn't certain they were going to be played there, there was 600,000 people who attended a football game. So basically they needed to change the sporting culture of Sydney to the tune of a million extra people like turning up to a football game over the course of the year. I mean, we don't watch because of TV now. When there wasn't any TV, we didn't turn up there. Yeah, yeah. So like, what were we even doing? <laughs> like, we can't be that busy. No, I know. Uh, and so he was gambling on getting an extra million people a year to attend football games. They were gambling on people finding Paddington too convenient. Uh, (laughs) So Corcoran said that ground hirers hate the SFS and SCG because people, you know, go to the restaurants, they go to the pubs, and so all the money goes to the area, not inside the ground. So uh, he said, when hirers go to the SFS, it's the publicans of Paddington who take a lot of the money and none of the risk. We are trying to recreate out there as much as possible that same friendly environment that exists in Paddington, (laughs) but without the problems of parking, getting there and trying to get a beer. 
Now, now, Andy, like myself, you've been to Homebush. <laughs> I, I presume you've been to to Paddington and, and Surrey Hills. Uh, if you were, you know, choosing to go to a night out in one of those places, oh, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Honestly, <laughs> the blindfold test, you'd be you're like, "Where am I? Is this Paddington or Homebush?" So I think this shows you where the Stadium Australia board's heads were at. There was a lot of gambling, a lot of bold predictions, uh, and, and I just wanted to run you through a couple of John Corcoran's big predictions. Uh, firstly, he believed that getting an average crowd of 40,000 at Homebush was conservative <laughs> and had very realistic. He thought with everything going on in rugby league, we'd get uh, merged mega clubs that would uh, have outstanding popular support. And not only would you get all the Balmain fans, you'd get all the Magpies fans and it would just be like a hugely popular uh, club. <laughs> you know what's funny? This is what I was spruiking as a teenager. This is how it's going to be, man. Yeah. Like as a teenage moron. Yeah. He's the head of the city of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he should know <laughs> I know. You don't just count all the members of one club and the, the members <laughs> of the second club and say, all right, sweet, we've got at least 50,000 members. They didn't bank on the cavernous feel of like no. 70,000 empty seats. Yeah. Just absolutely unpleasant. Yeah. They had some sort of curtain system where they could knock it down to 20,000 somehow. <laughs> well, the thing about it is I was there recently. The crowd was, I think it was about 22,000 and it wasn't that bad. You don't need it full to have some kind of atmosphere. Yeah, but that's for such an expensive oh, yeah, stadium, yeah. flagship yeah. stadium. You want it to be yeah. good, <laughs> not, not that bad. This was his third prediction. Corcoran predicted that most rugby league in Sydney would be played at three stadiums early in the next century. Homebush, the SFS, and Parramatta didn't happen, but I say it should have. You know, like I think that would have been a good outcome. It might happen now. Yeah, and I think it does come back to that cultural change required, and and it just seems that that's not what Sydney's about. Uh, but that was just a little diversion into some of the competition and some of the things happening with sport outside rugby league. We'll turn back to rugby league, uh, or more precisely, rugby legal with all the ongoing court action that was spilling out from the main case won by Super League in October. Uh, and the most significant in these of these was the disputes over various player contracts. So there were a number of players in court either trying to have their, you know, ARL loyalty contract overturned or fighting for the right to be able to play in Super League. So you had... Anthony Mundine, Rod Silver, Jack Ellsgood, and John Cross. These were all players who were playing at ARL clubs. Obviously, Silver was released to go to the Bulldogs, um, but he was at the Roosters when he signed his ARL contract. So you had ARL players who'd signed with Super League clubs, and then you had a, a number of Penrith players who had signed ARL loyalty agreements that they were seeking to have overturned so they could stay at Penrith and play in Super League. And the thing about these court cases is that there was no one decision that was going to satisfy all the, the contract stuff that was happening. So uh, Jack Ellsgood and John Cross, for example, they eventually had injunctions placed on them which stopped them going to Super League for 1997. So they were the only two players that the ARL actually fought to stop them going. The reason for this is that they were in a different situation to most of the other players because 
they couldn't argue that they didn't know what was going on, that they, you know, signed contracts without thinking about it or without having proper representation. They'd actually gone back and forth between the two competitions, you know, trying to get a better deal. So the ARL put the injunction on them and, you know, it was all before the courts as to what their ultimate future would be. Uh, I love John Cross's comments about it. I I think there's a a lot to unpack in his statement. I don't understand all the legal mumbo jumbo, but from what I gather, it's an important case. (laughs) (laughs) From what he gathers. (laughs) Your case, (laughs) From what I gather, the fact that, like, it's before the courts as to where you're going to be playing football. I'm getting married this weekend. From what I got, it was a big decision. <laughs> uh, he went on to say, it sort of turned into a bit of a nightmare when Super League won, <laughs> which uh, to me that just encapsulates the rugby league player mentality. Like it's, you know, he signs two contracts <laughs> and then Super League wins and he's like, oh, oh, I shouldn't have signed that second contract. <laughs> uh, but then he goes on to say, but I'm not that worried about it. I'm happy at Illawarra and staying wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But going to Penrith would also be good. I still have two years of my three-year deal at Penrith. Either way, it works out well for me. <laughs> Easy going, John. Love him. Uh, and then he said, Super League are pretty confident it is a restraint of trade, but the ARL are confident it isn't. I just don't know. <laughs> isn't it refreshing to see someone that chill? Yeah. Like an athlete. These, yeah. these days they're just like, me, me, me. And he's just like, I'll play you or if I have to. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what ended up happening. So Cross had to go back to Illawarra. Ellsgood was forced to sign um, with the ARL and, and went to the Roosters. And interestingly, those two cases, if there was to be a split competition in 1998, the verdict of that case in terms of the loyalty agreements would probably have stopped ARL contracted players who were coming off their club contracts from going to Super League clubs. So, you know, Tim Brasher, the Johns brothers were the the kind of big names that were coming off contract. If there wasn't a reunification of the game, they most likely would have been barred from going to Super League clubs. Crazy, man. Quagmire. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, all the other contracts kind of went in different directions. So Anthony Mundine was forced to go back to the ARL. This didn't you know, take place until after the season had occurred. So he played out 1997 with Brisbane uh, and then was told he'd have to go back to the ARL for 1998. So similarly to Ellsgood and Cross, he had kind of gone back and forth between the two competitions in signing his contracts. Um, I'm actually not sure why the ARL didn't put an injunction on him. Yeah, I presume there's some kind of legal technicality for it. I'm not sure what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But meanwhile, so Rod Silver was allowed to stay with Super League. Steve Carter, Robbie Beckett and Danny Farah from Penrith were allowed to stay with Super League. But the other Penrith players, so uh, it was Phil Adamson, Carl McNamara uh, and a couple others, they were told that they had to go to the ARL. So Shambolic. Yeah. Um, but luckily, of course, the game reunited for 1998 and they could all basically stay put. And probably the most interesting thing about that Penrith case was more insight into some of the negotiating tactics 
used by the ARL and Phil Gould in particular. So there was a, a carrot and stick approach with Phil Adamson's evidence saying that Phil Gould told him that I'll get you what you want at East or Manly if you you know stay with the ARL. So there's a carrot. Steve Carter got the stick and was told, if you sign with Super League, it'll be your last game of football. You won't ever play representative football. It'll be the end of you in rugby league. That's just sickening. Yeah. A, he never picked him for any rep side yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then he, thank God it wasn't the end of him for rugby league because I love Steve Carter. But... And also, you know, presumably they were mates from the Penrith days and, you know, Steve Carter, obviously a very loyal clubman and a wholehearted player it just seems yeah you know, over the top yeah it's interesting that when they're always promising blokes something it's never like we're going to get you into the magpies mate yeah build them up help yeah the games mm. like, no, eastern manly need another yeah 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 great player yeah again like further evidence of the double-edged sword of having bozo and gus being the <laughs> arl's chief negotiators <laughs> But so that was the basic rundown of the legal situation. There are another number of other, you know, minor kind of things going on in court. There was questions about the trademarks of the various clubs. The ARL ended up not putting an injunction on the, you know, IP of the Super League clubs. So fears that, you know, Canberra would have to play as, you know, the Canberra Vikings or just the Canberra Rugby League team didn't happen. See, I mean, I'm glad they didn't do it. Firstly, that's magnanimous to them. But, I mean, if they had done that, that would have been a death. I, I agree. And I think, and I don't know for sure if that was the reasoning, but I think if it was, it's like really good foresight by the ARL to think about the fact that the aim is to get the two competitions together. Yeah. And that is going to be, you know, hindered by having these new entities running out in 1997, only for fans to be told, you know, you were a fan of the Penrith Big Cats this year, but we're going to be the Panthers again next year. It's just... Well, it just reminds me of those video games that didn't have the rights yeah, to the yeah, players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it would have been shooting themselves in the foot. So in the end, that trademark question never really got solved because the game kind of came together first. And it would have been an interesting like legal case yeah. to see like how that would have fallen. Yeah, man. Camera Vikings didn't mm. want that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... The other kind of outward force really impacting on rugby league in 1997 was the media in all forms, and and there was a lot going on. I I wanted to open by talking about print media, uh, and in particular, two competing propaganda rags (laughs) that the ARL and Super League had going. It really is like the fourth, fifth, and sixth estate of rugby league. Yeah. The media. (laughs) Just death riding and pumping up. Yeah, <laughs> since 1908. So the ARL had Big League, which had I think it had flirted with the propaganda over the, the past two seasons. You had that 1995 cover of the boy in a change room, you know, like, <laughs> please, Mr. Murdoch, don't take our game or whatever it was. But I think for a lot of that time, they also kind of just stayed away from it and kind of stayed on field, which is true to some extent in 1997. It was just more in, in Neil Whitaker's editorials at the start where they were really pushing the ARL party line. Well, both of them were just exemplary cases of um, propaganda. I loved it. Right? Yeah. But it was almost like um, from the ARL side, it was like the two minutes of hate in 1984, you know, just 
bring up Murdoch and Rebo and we're yeah, yeah, screaming, yeah. Screaming, you know, like we all did. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about the ARL's marketing in part two of this chapter, but it was all about the it's my game was the catchphrase they used. And Neil Whitaker in, the, in Big League, this is an example of how Big League was used to kind of push that line. The ARL's new theme, it's my game, spills over to Big League. It's my book. As fans are reminded that they own the greatest game on earth, the best club teams in the world will battle this year to a September date with destiny as they strive to win the prestigious Optus Cup. And Big League will be with you all the way, bringing you an exclusive look inside the world of the best premiership the game can offer. Do you remember getting your um, share certificates in the, in the <laughs> mail for the game when you were in the 90s? I didn't get mine. No, and yeah, we'll, we'll have more to say about that in part two. But uh, that was one thing. And as I said, you know, Big League mostly played it straight and it was just covering the football and the team lists. When team lists are your selling point, you know, like we've got the team lists. Yeah, yeah. It's like... <laughs> oh, it, I mean, I, I think that's a bit... I, I, I love the team yeah, lists. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> you mean somebody's told you who's playing and you wrote them down? It was important. Like, you know, you'd, you'd go to the games <laughs> and you'd get your big league to know who was playing. Well, it's just like getting the TV program on the paper. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. that, you were screwed. Yeah. But all of this had a really bad effect on ground sales, which was Big League's bread and butter. So prior to the Super League war, Big League used to sell at a ratio of one copy for every five spectators at a footy match. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it was always like a highlight of, for me, yeah, going to the footy. Yeah. It was like the team list and then the poster. I'll get the Big League and I'll get a few uh, doubles, please. Mate. Yeah. So yeah. Just get my gambling going at age 11, thanks. <laughs> so... Through the Super League War, by 1997, that ratio had blown out to 1 in 20. So they were really struggling. Bill Morty actually pulled out. He was the, you know, editor of Big League and he pulled out and, you know, the A-Roll were left scrambling to to keep it going. The sub-headline on that was hilarious. Bill Morty fails to break even. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so that's the Big League side of things. If they kind of were trying to be subtle in their propaganda. (laughs) Super League, the magazine, was the most elaborate exercise in turd polishing (laughs) you you could imagine. It really was. It really was. I mean, i got to say, as someone who is putting this research together, like having Super League, the magazine, was awesome. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's part of the reason that this season took a bit longer to put together because suddenly I had, you know, 35 you know, extra magazines to go through. According to that uh, record, you're watching the most high-end modern sporting competition known to man. (laughs) And we're going to get quite a few uh, excerpts from Super League, the magazine, (laughs) sprinkled throughout this season. But just the, like, over-the-top statements and the, you know, endless defense of the World Club Challenge and, (laughs) you know, countless other follies. I mean, yeah, we'll get to it. Uh, this is just a, a bit of an aside. I, I had nowhere else to slot this into the season, so I might as well do it now when we're talking about Super League, the magazine as a whole. Uh, interesting bit of trivia. The Newcastle Knights made the front cover of Super League, the magazine, before the Hunter Mariners did. What? <laughs> yeah. So towards the end of the season when it was clear that, you know, we were going to be reunited in 1998, they had a a, a cover that was you know, I, I think it might have been Andrew Johns was the, the Newcastle representative talking about the prospect of a Super Bowl. 
It wasn't until a couple of issues after that with the World Club Challenge final that a Mariners jersey was, was featured on the, <laughs> on the cover. You mean the finalists of the World Club Challenge didn't get a run? <laughs> Do you reckon Barb from Aussies from ARL pulled some strings and no. got, <laughs> got it happening on the underground network? <laughs> Rugby League Week, on the other hand, as they had done all along, just played a a completely straight bat. Norm Tasker said, We've always felt ourselves servants of the people, and in these trying times, we'll continue to be that. We will cover the game in all its elements. That means we'll treat both competitions with equal respect, we'll cover each of them independently, without fear or favour, and we will be one of the few media outlets left that does so. God, I miss that thing. Mm. Real stand-up guys for journalism. Yeah. Yeah. So the only change to Rugby League Week in this year was moving from the large folio size of the classic era to the, you know, smaller quarto size, more more of the square yeah. magazine. I like the old school. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, and went glossier. It didn't go glossier as inside sport, mate. That was on <laughs> each page was worth five bucks <laughs> to print. Uh, and the last thing of print media, we saw a lot of like, the slanging matches between journalists. So in a Danny Weidler column, uh, he wrote this, that PR Dynamo Super League's Rebecca Wilson has itchy feet. Why else would she have applied for a position as media coordinator at SOCOG? Poor Beck didn't make the final three candidates. And when she missed out, we can tell you she was fuming. <laughs> so bad look for Rebecca Wilson. A worse look for Danny Weidler when a week later he was forced to print this retraction. <laughs> Oops. Our usually reliable sources at SOCOG gave us a bum steer last week. We reported that Rebecca Wilson had applied unsuccessfully for a position at SOCOG. We have since been informed by SOCOG that wasn't the case. She, in fact, turned down a very important position, which she was sought out for, and instead chose to stay at Super League. Wilson is clearly highly thought of by Super League and SOCOG. The last word apologises for our mistake. Embarrassing. I mean, I know you hate those muckrakers, but as a, especially as a teenager, I used to lap it up and how petty it was and how somewhat ironically but also somewhat genuinely yeah. I used to lap it up. Yeah, and yeah. Like looking back on it, we got grown men bickering publicly over nothing. And the fact that it's not even like bickering about players or teams or whatever, it's literally like having a slanging match about their journalistic efforts. Yeah, but and also it's like why is the other one worse than the I other? I know, like <laughs> Rebecca Wilson was one of the worst defenders. So, you know, she, she's like right in the thick of it. Why do they think that anyone gives a shit? <laughs> but they used to sell papers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would go straight to the uh, gossip in the Sunday Telegraph every single Sunday morning. Yeah. On a similar line, can I give my defense for Buzz's spotted um, <laughs> column? Like, you know, it's become like a bit of a running joke on Twitter, like these, you know, bullshit kind of, you know, someone seen in Double Bay, you know, like I actually like to know that, you know, Dylan Walker's getting his hair cut or whatever it might be. <laughs> but in the newspaper era, that was cool. Yeah. Those fun things were fun. Yeah. Uh, so if print media was struggling uh the radio situation was even worse with um you know catastrophic ratings all year um this was partly made difficult by the fact that super league struggled to get radio coverage in sydney because there weren't that many sydney games we do podcasts i love podcasts love listening to them i love the audio medium radio sucks yeah people on radio suck yeah and then they talk about it every week Two UEs leading the ratings over 2GB. Yeah. <laughs> Who seriously cares yeah. about some 
out of date medium. Mm. Be like when Bunnings come around and they were always crapping on about like the mum and pop hardware stores and everyone wanted to save them and then two weeks later I was like going to Bunnings and no yeah. one cared. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, every suburb has their like pickets out anytime there's like a Coles or a Bunnings put in. <laughs> <laughs> and then it inevitably goes through and two weeks later it's like you never hear of it again. <laughs> They're still commenting on it now. Mm. King Kyle's were leading the ratings in the morning. <laughs> But, like, I mean, it's interesting that, like, if you look at the podcast charts, it's always, like, you know, Hamish and Andy. And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. It's always just, like, reconfigured radio shows. That... <laughs> yeah. But so having less Sydney games made it hard for Super League. It was also hard given their onerous demands. So they were saying that they wanted national coverage. They wanted a say on who calls games. There couldn't be any ARL coverage on the same station. You know, Monday night football on Super League, they weren't allowing radio broadcasts of that. It's like, well, you're not doing yourselves any favours. Well, they're probably thinking we're trying to, like, go to the new millennium and we don't really need Monday night football radio. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But in hindsight, they did. Yeah. (laughs) But a further example of the weird relationship between the ABC and Super League, they were not doing ARL matches on Sundays. They were doing Super League matches. And on one particular Sunday where there were no Super League games, they asked to do an ARL game and the ARL said no because they didn't have the rights. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, we mentioned pay TV. Let's turn to it now to get a bit of a sense of where we were on the pay TV front in 1997. We discussed it in 1996. It wasn't great. Uh, We're doing a bit better in 1997. So Foxtel were advertising the fact that they had four live premiership games a week. So that was everything but the Monday night game, as well as live English football, which I love how it was called EuroLeague. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was so excited for that. I was Mm. just like, this is it, mate. Yeah. English League is going to take off here. People are going to support the English club. It's going to be just like Aussie football. No. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, this is like... How removed I was from Super League in 1997 that I wasn't even following like the results of the World Club Challenge game. I didn't even realize what a debacle it was. All I'd see was like Brisbane playing Bradford, and I'd be like, "How cool is this? They're like playing you yeah, know, like to- on paper. It was so cool." <laughs> uh, so Optus like less live coverage. They were advertising at least two live games a week, so at least two out of six. No live coverage on Channel 9 of the ARL. What I don't get is, you know, they were selling the fact that they had every game that would be either, you know, two games live, the rest on delay. Fox were doing as well, selling it as such a, you know, every game. Yeah. That's great. But, like, what else are you going to be putting on? <laughs> like, you're a sports channel, like, that's paid all this money for the rights. Like, <laughs> yeah. isn't having every game, like, the bare minimum? <laughs> Mate, we've got downhill canoeing. We've got (laughs) – it's absurd, isn't it? But that was the era. Watching every game was just considered otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. And otherworldly and something that was really cool was even if they weren't showing all ARL games live, Optus were putting coverage of Reserve Grade and President's Cup on, which is like a really cool thing that like you could actually see these games on TV. So that was one thing that they managed to do. But it was a work in progress. Uh, Foxtel were big on talking about the global reach they could offer through pay TV. So this is another example of Super League, the magazine, Trevor McEwen, who was (laughs) the editor of the magazine. 
Super League will be beamed to a potential worldwide television audience of 400 million in North America, Asia, Australia, South America, South Africa, the Pacific Islands, and Australia and New Zealand. Has a single word ever done as much heavy lifting as potential does (laughs) in that sentence? See, this saddens me looking back at this now because if we did what the AFL did with the Swans with pushing it overseas putting a proper package together, putting a proper presentation mm. and building it slowly, yeah. the game would speak for itself. But it's almost like they're asking the game to speak for itself without doing any of the planning and the logistics yeah. and, and the build. It's just like, yeah. oh, we've got this product and there's 400 million people we could potentially reach. Um, but at least they had the potential. Meanwhile, Optus couldn't even get Phillip Street hooked up. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> So I'll read this. The father of a Sydney City reserve grader could not get off work in time to reach Parramatta last Friday to watch his son's team go around in the semis. Knowing Optus televises lower grade games, he went to the New South Wales Leagues Club to watch the game, but the club is not hooked up to Optus. That's just too funny. <laughs> Do you think like some ARL executive was like, mate, they're slugging us 80 bucks a month? <laughs> We'll get it on delay. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I honestly think if the ARL was aligned with Foxtel and Super League with Optus, ARL would have won hands down. Foxtel was so much better. Mm. Just better stuff on there yeah. apart from sport. Yeah. And Optus just felt like really thrown together and cheap yeah. at the time. And they had the worst commentators yeah. For some reason, these brown jackets, like the black and brown jackets they had, like it was just an awful look. <laughs> it's like they did everything wrong. Yeah. Uh, so that was pay TV. It was still very much in this era that like free-to-air was going to, you know, basically decide the outcome. And so it's surprising that it was mid-January 1997 before Super League had sorted out who was going to be covering Super League. So obviously it was the Channel 9 decision that, broke Arco's heart, uh, but then also it was going to be the ABC covering the Sunday afternoon match, which meant that there were two Super League games a week that were going to be on free-to-air TV. Neither of them were going to be live. So Super League were talking about how, in another contrast to the past where Channel 9 was showing a truncated telecast of the Sunday match of the day, you'll now see every ball kicked, every pass thrown, like that's some sort of yeah. major prize. <laughs> a mere two hours after kickoff, you will get to see. As long as no one talks to you and you don't listen to any media, you'll enjoy this one. So that was uh, the ABC on the Sunday afternoon. So they were given the rights uh, basically to make sure country viewers were looked after and to ensure there was some extra free-to-air presence for Super League. So the ABC actually got those rights for free. Nice little win. If I know the country folk well, I know they were very interested in the Rams and the Mariners and what they were up to. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't producing their own telecast. They had a studio team, you know, headed by Debbie Spillane with some other ex-players and the like that would preview the games and then outro them at the end. But it was the Foxtel broadcast. It turned out to be wildly unpopular. (laughs) (laughs) And 
I get it because when I think of, you know, ABC on a Sunday afternoon, it's, you know, Sunday arts and landline (laughs) and this kind of like, you know, bizarre kind of like other world that exists for ABC viewers on a Sunday afternoon. (laughs) Uh, It was so unpopular that ABC executives wouldn't even commit to 1998 if there was another split competition, even with the free rights. Imagine getting a professional sporting competition rights for free and going, I don't know if we can. (laughs) But so that was one half of the free-to-air equation. Uh, The other half was Channel 9. And I'll say this at the outset, I have rarely been angrier in my life (laughs) as I was putting this segment of the episode together. Like over the past couple of months, I've periodically like sent you angry texts <laughs> yeah, just text. to vent. <laughs> you weren't a big fan of Channel 9 before this. Yeah. This has put you over the edge. Before we get to that, I thought we'd start with a, a relatively benign aspect of Channel 9 and Rugby League, which was the goings-on of the footy show in 1997. Classic television. Well, this is the tail end of the footy show's Uh, creative peak and cultural relevance, which tells you an awful lot about the footy show. (laughs) 93 to 95 was the uh, the early Beatles stuff. So 1997 saw the departure of Ray Hadley as one of the hosts. Oh, no, Mr. Luckable. (laughs) And so there are a few reasons put forward for this. You know, Channel 9 was saying that, you know, he had two UE commitments and it was just proving too much for him. Which we know is bullshit because the guy would work 24 hours yeah. a day if he could get, a, get on telly. And two UE boss John Brennan came out and basically said it was bullshit. He said, I haven't a clue about that. So more realistically, it was the fact that Ray Hadley was so staunch ARL in his comments that when they were trying to kind of have a more whole of game coverage, he wasn't going to be compatible with that. I've got to say, I actually liked him on the footy show. He's a broadcaster. He wasn't a moron. And he laughed at himself with the anti-ads and that. So I I didn't mind it. I think it was also Ray Hadley in that era was still coming up to some extent. He wasn't a made man on the radio scene. Yeah, whereas now, like, you couldn't imagine anything worse than, (laughs) like, a footy show with Ray Hadley on it. (laughs) Inside Sport editor Greg Hunter had a monthly spot on 2UE, where I guess you'd talk about that month's magazine. But Inside Sport rated Ray Hadley's backflip on the ARL Super League issue, one of its 10 worst performances of 1996, (laughs) to which uh, Ray Hadley responded by calling up Greg Hunter, the editor, and saying, you can forget about that spot. I'm the director of sport and you won't get any free plugs. Uh, Hunter responded, We never asked for the spot. I told Hadley I wouldn't allow commercial considerations to affect the magazine and that I couldn't give a rat's ass about the spot. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) The pettiness of, like, radio. You want to get my listeners? Yeah. (laughs) I control the gatekeeping, mate. Yeah. So probably a wise move then to move Ray Hadley on from the footy show at this time. I think it was a sign that the footy show were going to be determined to give Super League a fair go. Paddy Vorton said, we never had a problem with Super League except for that one show with John Rebo. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about turd polishing? <laughs> In my notes, I said it was like saying that the Titanic never had any trouble with icebergs <laughs> except for that one time in the mid-Atlantic. 
But kicking Hadley off the show prior to producing some of the worst television for the next decade yeah. did him a favour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Chris Johns was brought in as a replacement. Noted entertainer. Noted entertainer. And noted uh, voice of neutrality in the whole Super League war. He was, like, um, interested in finance junior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and so the reviews were not good basically because of a chemistry between the hosts that just wasn't there. And I think... Um, you need to be able to tell someone how bad their melon is and, like, have no undercurrent politically. It needs to be just mates saying how bad yeah, your yeah, melon. Yeah, 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 exactly. And with John's there, they weren't able to do that in the same way. Uh, Michael Kozlowski had an article where he highlighted this dynamic and what trouble that was going to be for the show. The minute an issue such as Super League's new player numbering is brought up for what used to be an entertaining and mostly tongue-in-cheek analysis, the unfunny internal prejudices come to the fore. Vorton and Roach usually voice a negative opinion of a Super Leagueism. Johns jumps in with a justification straight out of Super Leagues, how to deal with doubters of the vision handbook, <laughs> while Sterling maintains sensible moderation. Sterling was one of the only guys with sophistication yep. in the whole thing. But, I mean, their melons were bad and they had to be cornered. <laughs> yeah. We didn't need this awkwardness. Yeah, and we had other forums to talk about the bigger issues of Super League, but this was the only place you could go <laughs> for regular melon discussion. <laughs> Uh, and so as a result of this, Chris Johns ended up getting sacked after two episodes. Footy show producers tried to put a spin on it by saying that, no, he was never going to be the full-time host. We were going to have a rotating panel. Like, we'll have Chris Johns back, but we'll have other He's people. He's rotated in. out of the atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> so executive producer Rory Callahan said, the fourth seat on the panel would be empty and we would start a roster of people to fill it throughout the season. I suppose from the outset, Fatty probably didn't explain it well enough on the first show. He said, here's the fourth member of our panel. That was meant to be, here's the fourth member for tonight. <laughs> You're telling me Fatty didn't have the, um, the ins and outs of what was happening? Well, I think he maybe did because when Chris Johns was asked about <laughs> this arrangement, he said that this is the first I've heard of the new arrangement. <laughs> Fatty warms out. How good is this? Chris Johns. <laughs> Chris, you're going to be here every week. <laughs> Head wobble. Uh, but luckily, uh, amongst all this, the footy show's commitment to high quality entertainment was unwavering as ever. On Ray Hadley's departure, Fatty said, We will miss Ray Hadley. I hope his replacement fits nicely into a size 10. <laughs> And uh, they go on to discuss some of the new segments, such as the adventures of young Fatty. <laughs> it was only really when Chief got a leading role that it went really shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most boring, bland yeah. TV of all time. But maybe there was method in the madness of minimising football on the footy show. So Sherlock said that with everything going bad in rugby league at the time, Producer Rory Callahan and the team had no option but to turn the show into a loopy, knock them down fun fest, giving any mention of football the widest possible berth whenever possible. I profoundly disagree with that <laughs> analysis. The only thing funny about it was they were talking about football in an irreverent way with no airs and graces. That was the only thing funny about the whole thing. Yeah. To turn it into a variety show like yeah, like a even worse Hey Hey Saturday. Well, it might please you to know that Sherlock was not a Mr. Methane fan. <laughs> he said, 
<laughs> However, I, I sense that the quest for serious vaudevillian weirdness went just a tad far last Thursday with the appearance of a flatulent special guest <laughs> whose talents are virtually impossible to describe in a dignified column <laughs> such as this one. He's more of a Tokyo Shock Boys uh, fan? <laughs> so that's about as positive I can be about Channel 9 in 1997, just uh, benign tomfoolery on the footy show. Their other actions in terms of rugby league in 1997 are just absolutely disgraceful. <laughs> this is the, the channel that loves the game, right? Yeah, loves the game, has been there alongside the ARL in the trenches and, you know, is so big on rugby league that it got Super League as well because, you know, as we discussed in our previous chapter, if they didn't buy the rights, then, you know, <laughs> Channel 7 might have come in <laughs> and made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> so basically you'd have the ARL showing the ARL on Friday night and Saturday afternoons, Saturday afternoon on delay as well, and then Super League on Monday nights, which was really tough on the ARL. You know, it broke Arco's heart that they'd sign with Super League in the first place, but so much of the ARL's planning around 1997 came through Monday Night Football. It was the one positive they had in 1996. They were considering making it a year-long thing in 1997. But suddenly they were down to having Monday Night Football on Optus only. So a clear win for Super League then in stealing Monday Night Football off the ARL. Uh, But Super League very quickly found out who they were dealing with when... (laughs) Channel 9 decided that they would be moving Monday Night Football from 8.30 to 9.30. They might as well just put it at midnight. Yeah. It's just insane. And on top of that, Super League said that the radio broadcasters not only could not cover the games because, you know, Channel 9 were, were showing it and, you know, they did some studies that found that 2UE covering it cost Channel 9 five points in the ratings in 1996. So not only were radio stations not allowed to cover the Monday night matches, they weren't even allowed to provide score updates. Good Lord. Uh, So 9.30, after the full-time whistle had blown, you could get, you know, the Monday night football game on Channel 9. And that was a different era, but there's no way in the world it's going to work. No. Even 8.30 is hard enough. And this is the most infuriating thing for me how much of this all came down to the success of Water Rats. You know, an article said, the Australian police series Water Rats is rating so well on Monday nights that no thought has been given to moving it to another time slot during the season. <laughs> Colin Friels was over like Rover. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, I, I liked the show when I was a kid, watched it and everything, but I've never heard anyone go, made a, just going back and watch the box set of Water Rats, yeah, you know, yeah, like, <laughs> And the hide of Channel 9 to, like, put it back on the fans. So Gary Burns, who was 9 Sports Boss, said, Unfortunately for league fans, the current time slot is set to stay. The only thing that will change it is if the ratings move up into the 20s. At this point, they are in the mid-teens, so things will stay as they are. It's like, what do you expect when you put it on at 9.30? Like, how are the fans able to demand this when you're making it impossible for them to watch the games? And then so I got to thinking, well, all right, why does Water Rats have to be on Monday? Like, can't you move Water Rats to... Well, mate, Friday's got Burke's Backyard. We've got some other bullshit on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. Okay, so 
right? Thursday you had the ER footy show double. Can't break that up. Can't break that up. I was like so into that double at the time, you know, like it was great. So I'm like, okay, well, Thursday's out. What about Tuesdays and Wednesdays? Maybe that was NYPD Blue. So I went and found a TV week from 1997. <laughs> what was on? So Tuesday nights you had a show called Real TV hosted by Simon Westaway, followed by Gordon Elliott hosting World's Dumbest Criminals. <laughs> Wednesday night was reserved for TV movies, including uh, Richard Roxburgh and Last of the Ryans, the Treat Williams vehicle in the Shadow of Evil, and Robert Ludlum's The Apocalypse Watch. Got to watch the TV movies, mate. <laughs> it's like, like I, I just will never understand why Water Rats can't go on Tuesday night. You paid all this money for like the rights to Super League, like put it on. Oh God, it's sickening. So you might think, well, you know, here's a point for the ARL. You know, they suffered the the loss of Monday Night Football, but now you know they've got one back. Uh, unfortunately, there was going to be bad news for the ARL on that front because the deal that Super League did for the Monday night rights stipulated that the ARL game could not be shown in an earlier time slot than the Super League game, which meant that not only was Monday night football going to be put on at 9.30, but Friday night football was also going to be played at 9.30. I mean, that's just like, there's just no words for like just how like horrible Channel 9 have been to rugby league. <laughs> 9.30 on a Friday night. We talk about, you know, the toxicity of the war and how, you know, fans turned away because of the greed and, you know, the fighting and Murdoch. But like how much of the fans turning away was the fans just forgetting about rugby <laughs> league because they couldn't watch it? I had forgotten how bad it had gotten during this period. Yeah. What was on Friday um, evening? Yeah, so <laughs> Friday evening, uh, it was a real scramble for content. They'd either go with a one-and-a-half-hour version of Burke's Backyard. Oh, yeah, just drag that um, Or it was Sybil and Frasier. Oh, it can't be Sybil and Frasier. I did like Sybil at the time, but, like, again, like, just bump world's dumbest criminals. <laughs> well, but they're the world's dumbest. <laughs> they're not, like, some of the... Dumb criminals. They're the world's actual <laughs> dumbest. Clip shows have really um, been hurt by the internet, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Neil Whitaker used his big league pulpit to agitate for change, which is ultimately futile and kind of showed how impotent the ARL was, you know, that they were just at the behest of Channel 9. But I like the fact that he didn't back down. He said, I'm as unhappy with the 9.30 time slot now as I was at the start of the year. That said, Optus Vision have done a great job telecasting our matches live on pay TV. And when it comes to actual quality of coverage, so have nine. Score A for audience and technical expertise, F to Channel 9 for scheduling. P.S. I will again be writing to nine regarding this matter. And that will go straight to the special filing cabinet (laughs) marked waste paper. So the ARL and Super League got a reprieve for one week in June when, because of Wimbledon coverage, uh, Channel 9 were forced to bring Super League earlier. There's one thing they respect, and that's uh, what I called for about two and a half decades, Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> they, Channel 9 respected Wimbledon. <laughs> uh, and then, very big of them, they benevolently agreed to show finals at 8.30. So luckily we didn't have to wait till 9.30 for <laughs> semifinals. <laughs> the worst thing about it is it's not just rugby league. Like Channel 9, you know, just – 
prided themselves on being this great sporting network and wide world of sports. And, you know, we had this anti-siphoning legislation to stop, like, you know, pay TV stealing all the content. But in reality, it just means that Channel 9 siphons all the content, (laughs) doesn't put it on, makes it available to nobody. (laughs) Well, they respected cricket. Well, no, they didn't, okay? Here's a couple of examples of them not respecting cricket. So the Super League year coincided with the 1997 Ashes, which Nine held the rights to. They decided uh, not to show any of the first session for any of the matches. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. That would have ensured I made it at the time. I don't remember it. Uh, And at the time, it it caused a bit of a furor, so... Uh, some articles mentioned that Channel 9 actually had form in this regard. So when uh, South Africa came out, their first series in Australia after their apartheid ban, they were playing in Perth and Channel 9 decided to uh, miss the last session in favour of uh, the 1988 Dirty Harry movie, Deadpool. (laughs) But All right, so... Presumably they're paying for rights, right? Yeah. So what are they doing? Oh, the worst part is they got Richie Benno to do their dirty work for him, come on TV and talk about a rain delay in Perth, which, to be fair, there was a rain delay several hours earlier <laughs> that, like, was not the cause of this delay to the broadcast. So outright lying to people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're assholes. So in a predictable outcome... Channel 9 got murdered in the ratings for Rugby League in 1997, uh, beaten by Jag. uh, (laughs) A Touch of Frost doubled their ratings. That would have been my family watching that. (laughs) So a bit of karma came when uh, Hey Hey at Saturday was forced to go later because of Super League uh, semifinals and it then had to take on the bill directly and got smashed in the ratings by the bill. So, uh, you know, there's some karma. So the poor ratings continued throughout the year and predictably also it saw the end of Monday Night Football. So the momentum of 1996 was killed instantly. And I like this line, League has judged Monday Night Football a flop in 1997, television sources say. (laughs) Like, you killed it. Like, you killed it. You are solely responsible for this. Yeah. (laughs) And so by the end of 1997, Monday Night Football wasn't popular with anyone, wasn't popular with fans or clubs, definitely wasn't popular with broadcasters, and it went away. But I don't think you can undersell the influence of Channel 9 in reducing the popularity of rugby league. Everyone blames it on the war, but I really think their coverage like has a lot to answer for. What's amazing is in later years they began to rely on it. Yeah. Pay TV relied on it, Free mm. relied on it as the biggest draw. So they must have known it had drawing potential. So yeah. why are they sinking the slippers yeah. this week? But it's funny how even into the 2010s we were putting up with like league matches on delay. Yeah. Like, you know, there was the yeah. second game on Friday night, the Sunday afternoon delayed coverage. Well, the second game on Friday night was the equivalent of the Monday night football. Yeah. People are going yeah. to bed. Yeah. That's not a good time to get people to watch <laughs> <laughs> while they're catching some Z's. <laughs> That's the end of this part of the chapter. 
But I just want to say Channel 9 are an absolute cancer <laughs> on the game and have been for 30 years. I'm glad you got that off your chest. Do you feel any better? No, frankly. <laughs> I, was saying, it's, um, I was hoping it was going to purge you of the uh, poison. of. The I'll tell you that the really funny thing doing in this Super League research is I'm like caught between these two worlds and, you know, where like my head is in 1997 for a large portion of the time every week. <laughs> and occasionally like these two things like come into conflict <laughs> and the two things that do it for me are anytime Graham Annesley is you know, in the news talking about refereeing drama. He was the Super League boss in 97 (laughs) and the referees boss now. Anytime I hear his name, I'm just like, you know, I get a bit scattered. Like, you know, (laughs) wait, is this now or is this the 90s? And the same thing with Channel 9 and their hatred for rugby league. Like, (laughs) we're just in this time war. Well, I'm living in the 90s in a good way. Music and fashion (laughs) and, you know, good old days. But... Take solace in the fact that Channel 9 is now a obsolete, dying VHS machine. Yeah. So it's over for them. Yeah, couldn't come quick enough. Uh, but that is this episode. So um, please send me your angry rants about <laughs> Channel 9. And, yeah, we will speak to you next week. That's fab, mate.